chatting with you guys. You know, we got a we got we got beams <laughs> to show. We got beams uh, to show. That would have been bad. Right. <laughs> and I'll I'll be in and out um, with with the mute button. Tell me if the diesel gets distracting. There should be a low thrum. I think I it's I think it it's part all. of the it's part of what anything. people are tuning in, Bruce. You know, people want to want that <laughs> diesel action. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio. I am Sophie DiBenedetto and I am joined by our fabulous panel of co-hosts. We have Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Greetings from the middle of the Gulf of Mexico somewhere. So cool. We've got Alex Koopma. Hey, Alex. Howdy, howdy. Hey there. And we've got Steven Nunez. Hey, Steven. Hello. So we have got a fun episode today. Um, I'm in charge, so it's going to be, frankly, absolutely thrilling. But before we dive into the main topic, I would love to hear from Bruce. What is up with Groxio, our wonderful sponsor? What's new? So we have been updating our live view content. It's been a lot of fun just to see all the things that have happened in the last, uh, gosh, six months since we, since we started that course. So, and this month, so beginning the beginning March 1st, we're going to start tracking the live book work. And I'm really excited about that because I think it's going to change the, the face of Elixir in a lot of ways. It'll make us a lot more accessible. It will make Elixir better for documentation. It will make it better for machine learning. It'll make it better for exploring projects like NERVs. So that's one of the most exciting bits of technology. But once again, we're right early in the middle of it. So that's we're going to have to change the content. But I think it's worth it to give people an early look at what's happening. That is uh, very exciting and completely unsurprising to hear that you know, you're trying to walk this line between getting some great educational content out there for people that want to dive into these technologies, but also understanding that and seeing that it's changing uh, pretty frequently as it grows. I think that I can definitely relate to that from the work that we've done on the programming live ebook. And I think we'll even get a chance to talk a little bit about some of the live view changes today. Um, yeah, so thank you for that update. And as always, we would love for our listeners to check out Groxio. I think that they'll get a lot out of it. So moving right along, um, actually one more thing that I wanna talk to you guys about before I jump into today's main topic. And it's my new favorite thing that I own. Um, I think I already mentioned this to Steven, but I got myself an electric chainsaw and it's just so awesome. So I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys, but we had this crazy, crazy ice storm in my area a couple of weeks ago bunch of trees came down luckily no damage to my actual house but my yard and property is just completely littered with like the top halves of trees that now just exist on the ground so i borrowed an electric chainsaw from a friend of mine and i did some cleanup and i loved it so much that i got my own and i'm really thrilled with it it's very lightweight it charges up really fast and it just makes me feel really badass to use Definitely recommend getting an electric chainsaw. Chainsaw therapy is a thing, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I yep. had this. I had this uh, kind of a, a probably a half acre uh, property in Austin, Texas, and there were cedar trees which would kind of choke out everything on the property. They would they would choke out the massive oaks. They would choke mm -hmm. out anything that you wanted to plant, and the chainsaw therapy was marvelous, right? It, it was great. So I, I commiserate with you. And so congratulations. And um, I'm sorry, I guess. 
No, I'm I'm happy that uh, it gave me an excuse to get this. And I totally agree with the chainsaw therapy thing. There's definitely something really satisfying about seeing the physical results of what you're doing, like as this stack of wood that I've chopped or sawed or chainsawed or whatever gets, you know, bigger and bigger, especially because, you know, most of what we all do all day, every day is just sit in front of a computer and make things that are a all lot fake. more intangible. Yes. I was yeah, going to say intangible, but we'll go. No, with this is all pretend. We're playing yep. pretend. Oh, absolutely. Type, type, type. You've yeah. inspired me. I have, I bought an electric chainsaw and I was just like, oh, you know, I like my fingers and I haven't actually <laughs> used it yet. I've got the chain oil and it's now, easy. you know, I'm inspired. So today I'm going to go chop some yeah. stuff up. Follow me on Same. Twitter to see if I cut a finger off. Don't yeah. cut a finger off. <laughs> Kickback is a thing. Read about That's it. True. Know it. Know how That's it happened. Yeah, yeah. I've met that one through. I've met that one through my work with circular saws right in the chest. Oh God. Oh Good God. times. <laughs> get a get a saw stop. Yeah. Well, the nice thing a about this stop. chainsaw, chainsaw. <laughs> it has this like little break on it that goes over your hand. It's like this little plastic shield so it's supposed to be that if you were to start you know lifting the chainsaw up too much like if it becomes powered up and starts to approach you your hand hits the brake and it turns off so certainly not foolproof and it certainly won't capture you know every single thing that could go wrong whilst using your chainsaw but there are some safety features built in that, that is definitely some safety feature you don't want to test you definitely just, not no. it works so you never want to use yeah, it yep exactly oh my god all right everyone thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of <laughs> Carpentry Saw Tools Radio. Saw yeah. Radio. I like it. Saw it's a spin off. Spin off. Mm-hmm. I love it. So, like so anyway, lumberjacks, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that it. could be our new branding. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's what's new with me. One other announcement that I want to share with our listeners. Um, I like how I just referred to my purchase of the chainsaw as an announcement. But an actually beam related announcement is that I am teaching a live view workshop at MPEX in Salt Lake City coming up at the beginning of May. I'm really, really excited because so many things have changed in LiveView even since the latest edition of our book. So I wouldn't say that our book is out of date now, but I'm really excited to use this workshop to get into some of the new goodies that have come out. So if you're thinking about coming to MPEX, which you know is a small regional Elixir conference that is a ton of fun. You know, we've got a lot of cool stuff lined up. It's like a nice, smaller, intimate conference. I would love to see any of our listeners um, at the conference. And I will be doing some promo codes for our listeners. So just keep an eye out on Twitter for that once I work out the details. And hopefully I'll see some of you back there and we'll build some cool things with LiveView together. It combines two of my favorite things. It's Salt Lake City. We, we love Salt Lake City, uh, especially skiing that way and um, enjoying the ski resorts during the summer months, nothing better. And, um, and everything related to impacts. It's, it's just a wonderful small venue conference that has become kind of a staple in the Elixir community. Oh, I didn't even think about skiing out there. I'm gonna totally go skiing. That will be so much fun. Thanks for that tip. All right, and with that, I think we've got a good segue into our topic today, which unsurprisingly centers on live view. But what I'm really interested in digging into is the new intersection, the new opening up of possibilities between LiveView and JavaScript. So in some recent versions of LiveView, we've got some new features that are available. Uh, They're referred to as JS commands or JS findings. And I think it really opens the door to a lot of really interesting and sophisticated 
JavaScript functionality, um, you can very easily now build in client-side interactions to your live view apps. And you can do the pretty sort of normal common run of the mill things like open and close a modal or show and hide a thing or apply and remove a transition class. Now purely on the client side, instead of having to either hack something together to get some custom JavaScript there, or God forbid round trip to the server for something, you know, again, as simple as basic and basic as showing and hiding a modal. So that I think is, you know, something that's really cool and speaks to uh, the need for LiveView to kind of stay competitive with other JavaScript frameworks. Like why should I round trip to the server to open and close the modal? But beyond that, and I think what you can really see uh, in some of the projects that are starting to come out, including Chris McCord's uh, Live Beats project, which is really cool, it really opens the door for some pretty intricate JavaScript to you know, live on your client side, to augment your application, to bring a whole new level of interactivity, but to still provide a really sane API and a really sane interface for you to use to plug in that JavaScript. So combining JS hooks with JS commands um, I think is really what allowed Chris to build this, you know, collaborative live view powered music player and digging into the, some of the source code there has been really interesting. So I have, you know, certainly more to say on this, but I'm curious to hear if anybody else on this particular panel today has played around with live view and JavaScript, maybe prior to coming out with findings and commands and kind of what that experience was like, or even just if people have heard of others using it. Um, yeah, any any just initial thoughts to some of this new functionality? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And actually last week uh, I put together a very simple uh, HTTP server, uh, I think it's X server on uh, on GitHub. I can't remember what I, what I actually called the project, but it's kind of like uh, Python's simple HTTP server. So you launch it from the CLI and it'll start a, a server right in that uh, current working directory. And uh, that was very much, I, I needed to actually get prepared for today's podcast. I needed to play <laughs> around with JS hooks. So that was my, that was my homework assignment. That's, uh, that's why that project came about. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, yeah, so that's actually the first time I played around with uh, with the JS module, and at first, it, like it feels a little awkward and 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 funny mm -hmm. that uh, you're kind of inserting um, you know Elixir module calls right in your in your attributes. Uh, but after you get the hang of it, it's it's not too bad, and it is it is quite uh, it is quite handy. And for a lot of cases in the past where you would reach for something like Alpine JS, I think mm -hmm. the majority of your use cases are kind of covered by the JS module. I think there are still some cases where you need to lean on something like Alpine, where you need maybe like, you know, global state and uh, and things are getting reset. But uh, you know, like like most things in in you know, in Elixir and Erlang, the escape hatches are there, and it's giving you the eighty percent of the work done for you for for twenty percent of the effort. So I think it's I think it's a great addition to to live view. And I mean, the fact that now we have the, you know, the Heeks formatter and there's a Heeks formatter plugin for uh, the, the Elixir formatter, the development experience is just on another level. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the project that you built specifically. What did you use the JS integrations for? Uh, I think the only place I used it was for the the dark mode toggle switch up the top, right? You know, you gotta have dark Very cool. Nowadays, you gotta have right? dark mode. Yeah. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't make an app without it. Um, yeah, it was also just to kind of experiment with uh, Tailwind's new uh, JIT compiler because I have some uh, quote unquote legacy live view apps that are pre Tailwind JIT and, and uh, <laughs> you know, pre Heeks. But um, yeah, it was ridiculously easy. I think, um, 
I think what I used it for was it was a JS uh, that was dispatching an event, and then I just had a listener mm -hmm. that said, you know, whenever the toggle switched, uh, you know, set the 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 window, whatever that property is for for dark mode. I can't remember it, but uh, yeah, it was it was really nice and easy, and uh, the fact that you could dispatch from arbitrary elements and kind of escape out of the the JS module you know kind of uh, sandbox and do whatever you like in, in javascript land is super handy yeah that was one thing that i noticed just the the fact that it did kind of cover some of the same ground as alpine um and i think alpine was a good tool to have um but it seems like for the most part this replaces it a bit um it's interesting to talk about the, the idea of global state um because you know like i guess it's it might be useful to have that global state that's localized to the front end as opposed to, I don't know, spinning up a gen server and keeping track of state that way. Um, but who knows, maybe that's that's in the works. Yeah, I wouldn't be we just, We're gonna rebuild Redux, are we doing that? We're gonna rebuild Redux? Yeah, I think we're doing that. I, didn't you already do that <laughs> just like for fun? In the like I do ha I do have a, uh, when I, when I, usually when I'm teaching something, I like rewrite it in like some language. I wrote, rewrote Redux in Elixir for fun and just because I enjoy pain. Um, but I don't think it would help in this world too much because basically you end up building event uh, like uh, gen servers, which is just like consume an event, update state, consume an event, update state. It's gen servers with extra steps. Yeah, I think that's pretty much accurate. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be too surprised if there was some sort of like client side global state um, mechanism coming or in the works. Because one thing I noticed is there were a couple articles that came out on the Fly.io blog that I think Mark Erickson wrote about how to cache the state of your UI in something simple like let's say local storage or session storage and then hook into live view lifecycle events to restore that state on the server from the client. Um, and you can do it vice versa too, right? You can say that I'm storing my state somewhere persistent on the back end, like I don't know, maybe it's in Nets or Redis or something like that. And uh, you can, again, hook into live view lifecycle events to push that state back to the client when the live view comes back online. So I do think it's something that's on people's mind, um, this idea of recovering state under different circumstances. Um, but not to get too far out from the JS stuff, but that's another thing that live view now does for you. So one of the things I've been thinking about, just to take a step back, is reasons that people have given me for not adopting live view. And there were two things that I heard the most in probably like the past year and a half or so. And one of the things was like, well, when I really need some fancy JS interactivity, like that's when live view falls short. And I think that that's absolutely not true anymore. And that's a lot of what I wanna dig into today. But another thing that I've heard from people that has prevented them from adopting live view is dealing with crashes or even deploys, right? What happens to the state of let's say my multi-stage form, if I have to do a deploy in the middle of it, the live view process dies, the state is gone, the user lost you know, the 10 previous form wizard steps before this deploy happened. Um, and that obviously is a terrible user experience that you don't wanna give your users. I would understand avoiding a framework that would create that situation for you. Um, but that is absolutely not the case anymore. And now any element on your page, I believe that has a Phoenix change on it, is it a Phoenix change? I believe so. Yeah, Phoenix change on it. If the live view disconnects and the process dies, as soon as it comes back up, what the live view JS framework is going to do for you is it's just going to refire that Phoenix change event with, you know, whatever had been filled out in the form in the UI up until that point and your state restores for you. So you don't have to worry anymore about something like the live view crashing and your client losing state or a deploy happening while your user is 
filling out a complicated and fancy form. So just kind of on this theme of more and more things that I've previously heard of as blockers are now just handled in the framework. And that's really exciting. I want to dig into that some more. Um, maybe this might not be the right medium for it, but in a multi-step form, you not only have database state, but your live view may also have state. And if it crashes yeah. and comes back up, it might be hard to mm -hmm. replicate that. Um, so I'd be curious to see if maybe there's just a, a recommended pattern that we there should be one, following, which is, which is, you know, every step, write something to the database so you can easily restore um, as opposed well, to keeping, relying it on like mm -hmm. ephemeral server state. I mean, I think you can so, definitely go that way with it and store it somewhere persistent on the back end so that you can restore it whenever your live view reconnects. But you can also just store it somewhere client side, like put something in session storage, let's say, and restore it that way when the live view comes back online because there are some um, nice hooks that you can hook into to make that happen. And we can add into the show notes. Um, there's an article, this is one of the articles I was referencing that Mark recently wrote for the Fly.io blog that talks about, I think, both of these approaches. And I think that one of the things that's cool is the boundaries that we're talking about are shifting, right? So we are not talking about the same boundaries that we were talking about, um, I don't know, a year ago. What's When we talk about Live View now, we're talking about boundaries like what do I do with a disconnected with a disconnected client and you know there isn't a solution there we're, we're not talking about um, we're talking about how to implement things like um, interrupted interrupted clients and deploys and things like that and there are answers they're just not pre-built answers anymore and that's what you're talking about, Sophie, kind of the idea that the interfaces that we're using to build these systems are there. They're robust, they're, um, they're kind of, they're being proven as we speak. And we're starting to get inside that vortex where we're seeing live view applied to things that even the, the brain trust inside live view said, it'll, it'll never be for that, right? Um, and, and that's exciting to me. I'm kind of curious because um, like we've we've had uh, in previous companies like ephemeral state and gen servers and we needed to persist across uh, you know restarts and stuff like that so that problem isn't new so I'm curious if some of our old tooling in the Elixir ecosystem like libcluster and swarm can be leveraged for the same purpose right because then uh, if you set up swarm you have these uh, you know these uh, hooks where it's like if the server's coming down I need to transition state uh, you know the state of my gen server to another uh, server that's coming up and then, uh, you know, libcluster knows where to find that globally addressable process. So I'm curious if some of our existing tooling actually could support this, and maybe it's just un, you know, unexplored territory at the moment. So maybe, maybe you don't even need maybe to uh, persist in the database or local storage. You know, maybe this will be what we need to start uh, actually using uh, hot code deploys. That's me. Yeah. That's my whole. Yeah, thing. I mean, I that's the answer that I would have given people prior to live view sort of baking in this really nice state recovery mechanism i would have said well if you do you know hot code reloading you're not going to lose any state but that's you know it's complicated there's a lot of overhead and i think people are for good reason hesitant to reach for it yeah i think that one of the things that's interesting is that live view javascript applications are distributed applications and that's something that erlang and elixir do very well and we're going to see these things evolve 
all the facilities are there on either side. We just, and the interfaces are there between the systems. We're just gonna see them picked up progressively over time. And this thing is going to accelerate because we're built on the right foundation. Yeah, and I think we've seen that again and again, and it's it's such a fun experience and it's such a satisfying experience to see the specific concerns that people have raised be addressed in subsequent releases. And I think that I just sort of have this visual in my mind of like all of these dominoes that represented blockers to adoption getting knocked down. And I think that I'm really interested and I'm excited to see what it does to Elixir adoption overall that LiveView has become such a strong contender, uh, you know, for solving the problems of building like 99% in my opinion of modern web apps. Yeah, I totally agree there. I think I was, I can't remember what website it is, but there's this website that aggregates uh, like Hacker News jobs uh, postings. And uh, I was taking a look at that yesterday just to kind of see how the trend is going over time for, for Elixir and, uh, and career opportunities. And uh, over time it is trending up, which is, which is always a good thing. And uh, specifically, I saw a lot of posts saying that, you know, the, the app that they're, they're developing in that company was, was a pedal stack app. So I mean, people people are using this in production now, and I, I would I would still consider it early days for uh, you know the the live view ecosystem. But uh, I mean, people are adopting and using it for you know for businesses that you know make actual money. So that's that's always a good sign. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that we've always seen is that there are ecosystems where development is cost prohibitive, and that's like mobile application development is one of them. And so people have always talked about how to take those particular applications and say, how do I build the 80, 90% version of that thing? And LiveView keeps getting closer and closer in so many different areas, and, and it's, it's really great to see. Especially now with the with the Tailwind um, uh, JIT package, I think it was Chris McCord that published that, and there's also the ES Build uh, um, library as well for Elixir. It's ridiculously easy to get started, and your builds take. I mean, as you're developing, right? This is development time, not production time. Your builds take less than a second, and I mean that kind of flow is absurd if you're coming from like a Webpack where you're waiting like you know ten seconds every time you change a file and it's you know transpiling TypeScript to JavaScript to ES6 and you know browser compatibility. Well, no, no, you're done in you're done in less than a second. You make changes, boom, instant. And I think that the fact that you're able to make your developers more productive is just is just priceless. And then you kind of mix in the productivity jumps that you get when you're when you have this one mindset, one head mindset where the state is in mostly one place. And oh my goodness, it's it's that's it's it's the advances in how you think about programming that are the big deal with with LiveView, not the advances around the edges of that. Yeah, and I think there's so much that's been incorporated into LiveView in recent months that really increase that productivity. And I think one of the things is uh, the changes around function components and also function component slots, because now you're defining these really elegant, really ergonomic reusable components that are also super dynamic, right? Because you can inject little bits of content uh, into like the framework of your modal component or your bootstrap card component or your table component and what have you. So I think that's definitely something that we've seen inspired by Surface and that LiveView has been pulling in more and more from Surface. But 
I built out um, part of the app that I'm going to be using in the MPEX Live View course, super subtle plug right there. Um, and I was able to really dig into using function components with named slots. And I took the bootstrap card uh, HTML markup and CSS, and I built it into a reusable component that could render like a list of cards dynamically and inject any content into them. And it, you know that experience when you finish like a little feature piece of code and it's just really satisfying because you feel that the code is really clean and concise and you just wanna go back and like keep looking at it even though you're done and it works. Uh, I absolutely had that feeling having finished that feature and that wasn't because like I write really good code which is certainly debatable. Like it wasn't up to me that code that I was writing. It was using live view components. It was using named slots and everything just slotted pun intended into place really, really nicely. And it made me feel like if you were building out a more complex UI, um, the ability to create these reusable components and kind of use them throughout your app would just really supercharge the productivity of your team who's working on these front end features. Yeah, I just I resisted stateless components for a while because they they mm -hmm. felt awkward. Mm -hmm. And then so I would I would try to find ways to build to to plug in functions where I really should have been using components like the whole first Tetris video. I did something like that. And I agree with you, Sophie, that that with function components, this structure has kind of arrived it, and because it brings this assigns little database of state to kind of a focused typed database of state along for the ride is getting to be a beautiful and elegant thing. And I think that that one of the things that the team has done is they've taken the most important parts of surface and they brought it in quickly. And then they've waited on the more controversial bits and they've slowed down. And so that's kind of one of the things, one of the hallmarks of Elixir is Jose is like that that jazz player or blues player who knows what not to play. And Chris is kind of starting to pick up on some of that. And it's fun to see. Has anyone had a chance to dig into the Live Beats app or the source code at all? I took a brief look at it, but mm -hmm. I didn't get a chance to really, really deep dive into it. But um, it, I mean, it is, it is really cool to see, you know, what you would expect, maybe like a, you know, an app that was written uh, as a spa before, like an SBA. Mm -hmm. um, done in, in in live view and uh you know the same thing with live book i mean those are really really complex apps and the fact that uh they're all written in uh, in live view i think really really uh you know shows that this is a production ready uh tool and you can you can write some pretty interesting stuff with it yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree yeah i took i took a look at it and you know it's it's because it's going to sound kind of silly but like it's ju it's just a phoenix app like it's it's an elixir app it's a phoenix app it's a beam app everything is so close to the primitives there are servers and there's timers and there's you know message passing and responding to events and yeah there's markup as like a response as sort of like the um you know the end of what we render but it's so cool to see just an elixir app like in in the works like it's really really cool to sort of to see the concepts of like presence get used and the cool things you're doing with live view. Um, and then that's really the, this is supposed to be sort of a showcase app, right? Like all the cool things you can do. But if you actually dig into the code, it's just like regular old Elixir. I've written pure Elixir applications 
and you know using all the the primitive pg and the distributed stuff and the gen servers and so all all of that stuff and it's just in this app it's just normal elixir um regular old elixir um which i think is probably the, the coolest bit of it is that we're i feel like we're just showing up to every party with you know but have you heard about these like you know patterns that we've been using for decades at this point oh no well now it renders html and it's amazing now, now it controls robots and it's amazing. Like, uh, yeah, it's it definitely take a chance to dive in. It'll be in the show notes, look at the, the source code and you'll see that it's just like normal, like a regular old Elixir app. So one of the things that's the coolest to me is that is two things. First, you mentioned the idea that the presentation is there, Stephen, but the presentation is a bit of complexity that's beautifully sectioned off for most of the time so that the Elixir app can shine through. That's just knocked me out of my chair the first time I saw it. The second thing that was cool is that we're starting to see some of the benefits of Phoenix that, that we started talking about, what, five, seven years ago, you know, this, this thing called presence. And that is the social bomb in this application. It's when you have the infrastructure to support presence, the way that it should be done, when you have the distributed science, the computer science behind this thing to make sure that you can handle mostly connected networks, things get really exciting because you're not having to wade through all of those special cases all of the time. I have a quick question. How do you think that LiveView is impacting the day-to-day -day task of building a single-page web app? now versus when it was created, um, I don't know, a, a couple of years ago. How have things moved forward in, in your day-to-day -day programming life? I think they've gotten a lot simpler, uh, especially with things like uh, like live session in your router now, where you can kind of s state that, hey, this this um, this live view is going to stick around for a while as long as you're in, uh, inside of this live session block. I mean, the speed of the application and the responsiveness of it, like it feels like a, a thing, it feels like a single page application. And I think actually uh, Mark Erickson had another blog post where he was like, add a slight delay to your, um, you know, your loader up at the top because, uh, you know, your app is already loaded and then the, the loader comes up at the top and it looks like it's slower. So I had a delay there just to make it uh, uh, appear like it's, it's actually just showing static pages. But uh, no, I, I think the ability to, to make an app that responsive and that quick without all the complexity that comes along with making these, uh, you know, these front end uh, single page applications is, is definitely a game changer. All right, so I got a quick question for you for your upcoming course. Uh, in addition to the JS module and, uh, and, and all the stuff that comes along with that, what are some of the other topics of LiveView that have, that have come out recently that you're going to be covering? You know, we have things like live session. We have things like, uh, you know, on mount hooks. Uh, you know, what's, what's that all about? When do we reach for those tools? Yeah, so I think the live session stuff is really cool. And it's another, yet another example of LiveView sort of pulling into the framework things that you would have had to do yourself and just giving you a really sane interface and like a nice home for all the code that you need to write. So something that I didn't really fully understand until live session plus, you know, live view lifecycle hooks kind of came out in recent versions was that you actually need to ensure that you're authenticating and authorizing your live view, not just when somebody navigates to that page directly in the browser, but also if somebody is live redirecting between live views. 
And the reason being that the whole point of the live redirect is that it's super snappy and awesome because it reuses the existing WebSocket connection. So if you're reusing the existing WebSocket connection, you're not going back through the router file, in other words, because you're not making a new HTTP request. So you're not actually executing any authorization or authentication plugs that you might have used to put before a particular live route in your router file. So if you navigate from like live view A to live view B, um, you're basically skipping any authentication or authorization that you might have put, you know, as like an authentication plug in your router. So what's really cool about live sessions is you can group live views together so that if you live redirect between them, they're going to share what's considered to be a live session. And then you use these on mount uh, callbacks that you can now hook into in your live views lifecycle to execute essentially the same auth that you need to execute if somebody was navigating directly to the URL, pointing their browser at it, you can now make sure it executes um, when people are navigating between live views in the same live session with the live redirect. And instead of you having to build that auth logic in this way that is duplicative into the actual mount functions of any given live view that you might wanna consider live redirecting between, you now just tell them to share um, a live session, you tell them to share an on-mount callback and you have a nice same little home to put your auth logic so that you make sure everything is super secure when you navigate directly to your live view uh, or if you navigate between live views. And first of all, again, I didn't like fully understand the implications of live redirect for security before the advent of these features. So I'm glad that I understand that better now. And it's just another example, again, I think of live view giving you a nice API, a nice home, a nice interface for all the code that you need to write to support these applications. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great review of all those features. And I, I can totally admit that I as well did not know that uh, live redirect didn't go through the router. So I uh, I eventually stumbled across the, uh, I think Chris McCord put together a nice security doc, but mm -hmm. I unfortunately came across that a lot later. <laughs> so well, I because I think it wasn't that clear. Like you could have come to the conclusion, right? That you, you know that a live redirect is, you know, great and fast and snappy because it reuses the existing WebSocket connection. So you could have kind of drawn your own conclusions from there saying, okay, existing WebSocket connection, not a new HTTP request doesn't go through the router, but um, I don't think that that implication was explicitly called out until a little bit more recently. And now that it has been explicitly called out, it's also been solved for within the live view framework, which is pretty nice. Yeah, so that's definitely something that I'm excited to get into in the workshop. And another thing that I'm excited to get into I know you said besides the JS commands, but I'm really excited to play around more with the JS commands, even just doing little things like, what did I use it for? Not showing or hiding a model. Oh, showing or hiding. I did like a search form. So the app that I'm gonna have um, workshop participants build out, they're gonna build out a um, kind of like a, li a library type app. Like you can browse books and search for books and check them out and return them. And I have this search form that lets you search for books, but the search form has like a million fields in it. It's author and category. and title and all these other things. So it takes up a lot of the page. So I thought, well, I just want to show or hide it based on somebody clicking this little icon. So that was like my first foray into working with JS commands because previously I would have round tripped this to the server. I would have set some sort of assigns that indicated whether or not I should show or hide this form. And I would have said that if somebody clicks the search icon to show or hide it, I'm going to send an event back up over the WebSocket connection to the server. I'll update that key in socket assigns and then I'll let that portion of the template re-render. Um, but you just get to tell the LiveViewJS framework to handle that for you by using these JS bindings to say, I'm going to apply or remove 
let's say a class to this particular form that will control whether or not the display is show or the display or display is block or the display is none. Um, and it's a simple little bit of JavaScript and CSS that I'm still happy that I don't have to write myself. I get to instruct LiveView to handle that for me. And I think that's really satisfying. Yeah, that is that is super cool. Uh, and I, I think this gets back to you know the, the the Phoenix and the Live View team seeing what people were leveraging you know external dependencies for and trying mm -hmm. to get that you know 80-20 kind of balance of all right, let's solve the majority of the problems while while still having a very you know concise API and a small kind of uh, footprint. Um, and then you know still allowing people those escape hatches to uh, you know to pull in those other tools on demand. Because I think in in the Live View docs, even as of today, it still supports like if you need to pull an Alpine, mm -hmm. uh, you know what what JavaScript uh, you need to insert into your app.js so that you can you can transition that state across uh, morph DOM patches. So yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, and I again I really think that's the recurring theme. I'm seeing sort of two ideas here that are really woven throughout the development story of LiveView. And it's if people are voicing reasons that are blocking them from adoption, those reasons are getting knocked down because new features are coming out that are built into the framework. Um, and if people are reaching for external libraries and tools, whether it's Alpine or Surface, to plug certain holes, those holes are getting plugged in the framework. Uh, so seeing that conversation happen between Chris McCord and the other LiveView developers and the community to really speed adoption and just open the pathway for people to be building in LiveView is, it's really exciting to see. It's really this living, breathing thing and it's really cool to be a part of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think that's a great note to wrap up on. Uh, I'm gonna say thank you to Alex, to Steven, to Bruce. A shout out to Graxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. If our listeners haven't checked it out yet, I would just say, what are you waiting for? And uh, I very much hope to see any of our listeners at my LiveView workshop at MPEX in May. And you guys can stay tuned. Keep an eye out on Twitter for some discount codes. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. This was the right amount of time, I think, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or else everyone's going to assume that we're like live view shills. So we got to balance it. Exactly. <laughs>